0: Hello, hello. Good morning everybody. Uh welcome to book club guys. Uh, we're gonna go ahead and get started now. We're gonna we're gonna get right into it. Um every Friday morning at nine a.m. Pacific time we get into the book club. What is it about? It's about helping um helping all of us stay connected, stay uh, focused on personally developing. I know it's not something that it's easy to do. It's not something that that a lot of people do. Actually, not, over 90% of people do not personally develop. The last book that they read was in high school. And, um, and and you know, since public school system doesn't really teach you much about how to win in life, then, uh, then it's not something that benefits benefits that much for for us not to read and personally develop. Actually, school, the reason they call it commencement is because school should be starting right now. Should school starts when you graduate? And uh, that's what commencement means. Commencement means comenzar, beginning. You're barely getting started. And that's what this is all about, guys. Right now we're reading the book Grit, and uh, it's a great book so far we're we are we uh we ended up last uh week at chapter four so it looks like this week we'll we'll finish up chapter five it looks like about an hour is good enough and if you want to join us live we're doing this through 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 zoom uh just send um, a message on the chat of of youtube so that you could plug in uh, and I'll send you the link. Yeah, this is public. This is not just a private meeting. So if you want to join in and read with us and uh, join us live at 9 a.m. every Friday, then you're more than welcome to do that. And um, and yeah, that's really important. Personal development means everything. You change the way you think. That's what that's what it does. You're changing the way you get ideas. You get new thoughts, new concepts that you would never thought, Uh, thought about before nobody ever taught you them and and school of course didn't teach you them so so then what happens is that you start changing the way you think and when you change the way you think you change the way you uh you believe your belief system gets shaken up right so you start changing your belief system and uh and you're and you start learning about empowering beliefs uh and 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 good beliefs and then you change your belief you change your actions you change the way you do things because now you do things that you didn't know that you could do or you didn't know that 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 if you did them they would change your results and therefore you want to ultimately everybody wants to change the results who doesn't right who doesn't want to be in a better situation who doesn't want a better life better future better kids better you know better everything who doesn't uh, and, you know, I guess there are people that, that, uh, you know, that don't want to change and that's fine. But if you're the type of person that does want to change and wants to grow and wants your future to be different than your past, then guess what? You got to change. You got to, if you want to change your results, then it all starts with your thinking. Anyways, that's, um, that's why we do this. And we're going to go ahead and jump on and get started with chapter four, Uh with with our co-host Tani Andrade you, you want any you, you have anything to say Tani you want you want to say something
1: I yeah i think it's really important just like you were saying how we don't learn certain things in school you know about self-development and how to think outside the box like they don't teach us those types of things so it's important for us to learn those on our own and this is a great environment to be able to do that because what we're doing is we're bringing it together for you so we're actually creating this environment for you so that you can come in, you can plug in, you can hear us read, you could read too, mm-hmm. um, you can just hear more about it and start learning more, and growing as a person and becoming a better version of yourself. So we'll get right into the reading. Um, we're going to go ahead and start reading, but we're on chapter four, and the book is called Grit.
0: All right. Awesome. I would like to get started, if you don't mind. Um, so let's do chapter four, how gritty are you? Recently, I gave a lecture on grit to undergrads at the Whart- Wharton School of Business. Even before I would uh, cleared my notes from the podium, an inspiring entrepreneur rushed to introduce himself. He was charming, full of energy and, enthousi- uh, and enthusiasm. Um, and enthusiasm that makes teaching young people so rewarding. Breathlessly, he told me a story uh, meant to illustrate his own pro- pro- prodigious grit. Earlier that year, he'd raised thousands of dollars for his startup, going to heroic lengths to do so and pulling several all-nighters in the process. I was impressed and said and said so. But I I hastened to add the grit is more about stamina than intensity, so if you're working on the project with the same energy in a year or two, email me, Can, can't, I can't say more about your grid then. He was puzzled. Well, I might not be working on the same thing in a few years. Good point. Lots of ventures that seem promising at, a, at, at the start turn out badly. Lots of optimistic business plans end up in, in, the, in the discard bin. Okay, so maybe this particular startup won't be what you're working on, but if you're not working in the same industry, if you're not on total unrelated pursuit, then I'm not sure your story illustrates grit. You mean stay on stay in one company, he said? Not necessarily. But skipping around from one kind of pursuit to another, from one skill set to an entirely different one, that's not what gritty people do. But what if I move around a lot and while I'm doing that, I'm working incredibly hard. Grid isn't just incredibly isn't just working incredibly hard. That's only part of it. Pause. Why? Well, the for one thing, there are no shortcuts to excellence. Developing real experience, uh, figuring out really hard problems. It all takes time longer than most people imagine. And then, you know, you've probably took you're, you've got to apply those skills and produce good and, um, goods and services that are valuable to people. Rome wasn't built in one day. He was listening, so I continued. And here's the really important thing. Grid is about working on something you care about so much that you're willing to stay loyal to it. It's doing what you love. I get that. Right. It's doing what you love, but not just falling in love. It's staying in love. How gritty are you? Below is a version of the grid scale I developed for my study at West Point and and which and which I use in which studies described in this book. Reach each sentence and on the right, check off the boxes that make sense. Don't overthink the question. Instead, just ask yourself how you compare not just to your coworkers, friends or family, but to most people. Number one, new ideas and projects sometimes distract me from previous ones. Mm-hmm. Not at all like me, not much like me, someone like me, Most, mostly like me, very much like me. Number two, setbacks don't discourage me. I don't give up easily. Next one. Oh man, this, this, this would be good to test ourselves, right? How many questions are there? Oh, we have to grade ourselves. Okay, this is good, maybe you guys could do this in your own time screenshot it okay screenshot it every single one of us, we got to do this, but not right now because. Um, it's not a class It's just reading, but this, this is something that all of us should do i'm going to do it okay, so let me screenshot it first. Alright i'm gonna screenshot everything you, sh- you guys should screenshot it too, okay number three I often set a goal, but later choose to pursue a different one. Number four, I am a hard worker. Number five, I have difficulty maintaining my focus on projects that take more than a few months to complete. Number six, I finish whatever I begin. Number seven, my interests change from year to year. Number eight, I am diligent. I never give up. Number nine, I have been obsessed with a certain idea or project for a short time but later lost interest number 10 i have i have overcome setbacks to conquer an important challenge to calculate your total grit score add up all the points for the boxes you've checked and divide by 10. the maximum score on the scale is five extremely gritty And the lowest possible score is one, not at all gritty. (laughs) Whoa, I wonder what what my score is. You can use the chart below to see how your score compares to a large sample of American adults. Percentile, 10% have a 2.5 grit, 20% have a 3.0 grit, 30% have 3.3 grit, 40% have a 3.5 grit, and 50%, 50%. 50%, so 99% of a 4.9 grid. Okay, keep in mind that your score is a reflection of how you see yourself right now. How greedy are you at this point in your life might be the, uh, different from how greedy you are, when you are when you were younger. And if you take the grid scale um, again later, you might get a different score. As this book will continue to show, there is different reasons to believe that grid can change grid has two components passion and perseverance. grid has two components passion and perseverance, if you want to dig a little deeper you can calculate separate scores for each component for your passion score. add up all your points uh, for the odd numbered items and divide it by five for your perseverance score add up your points for for the even numbers items and divide by five Uh, if you score high on passion you probably scored high on perseverance too and vice versa still i'll take a guess that your perseverance score is a wee bit higher than your passion score this is this isn't true for all people but it's true for most people i've studied for instance i took a scale in writing this chapter and i scored a 4.6 overall my perseverance score was five my passion score was 4.2 strange as it sounds staying focused on, on consistent goals over time is more of a struggle for me than working hard and bouncing back from setbacks this consistent pattern perseverance scores more often topping passion scores is a clue that passion and perseverance aren't exactly the same thing in the rest of of this chapter i'll explain how different how they differ and show you how to understand them as part of as two parts of a whole while taking the the grid scale you might have noticed that none of the passion questions asked how intensely you're committed to your goal they may seem odd because the word passion is often used to describe intense emotion for a lot of people passion is a synonym with infatuous or obsession But in interviews about what it takes to succeed, high achievers often talk about commitments of a different kind, rather than intensity. What comes up again and again in remarks is the idea of consistency over time. For instance, I've heard a chef who grew up watching Julia Child on television and remained fascinated with cooking into adulthood. I've heard of investors whose curiosity about the financial markets is a keen in the fourth of a scale or um, uh, keen in their fourth or fifth decade of investing as it was of their very first day of trading i've heard of mathematicians who work on a problem the same problem day and night for years without once this deciding oh the heck with this with this theorem I'm moving on to something else. And that's why the question that generates your passion score asks you to reflect on how you steadily how steadily you hold the goals over time. Is passion the right word to describe sustained endurance devotion? Some might say I should find a better word, maybe so. But the important thing is the idea itself. Enthusiasm is common. Endurance is rare. Enthusiasm is common. Endurance is rare. Consider, for example, Jeffrey Gentleman. For about a decade, Jeff had been the East African Bureau Chief for the New York Times. In 2012, he won the Pulitzer Prize for international reporting for his coverage of conflict in East Africa. He's a bit of a celebrity in the world of international journalism, widely admired for his courage and the pursuit of stories that, that put his life at risk and also for his willingness to unflinchingly report events that are unthinkably horrific. I met Jeff when we were in our early 20s. At the time, both of of us were pursuing master's degree at Oxford University. For me, this was before McKinsey, before teaching, and before becoming a psychologist. For Jeff, this was before he'd written his first news story. I think it's fair to say that back then, neither of us knew quite what we wanted and to be when we grew up. And we were both trying desperately to figure it out. I caught up with, with Jeff on the phone recently. And he was in Nairobi, his home base between trips uh, to other parts of Africa. Every, Every few minutes, we had to ask each other if we could still be heard. After reminiscing about our classmates and trading news about our children, I asked Jeff to reflect on the idea of passion and how it had played out in his life. For a very long time, I had a very clear sense of where I wanted to be, Jeff told me. And that passion is to live and work in East Africa. Oh, I didn't know. I assume your passion was journalism, not a certain area of the world. If I, could only, if I could only be a journalist or only live in East Africa, which would you choose? I expected Jeff to pick up journalism. He didn't. Look, journalism is a great fit for me. I've always gravitated towards writing. I've always been okay with uh, okay, being in in new situations, even the confrontational side of jur- journalism that speaks to my personality. I like to challenge authority, but I think journalism has been a sense of means to an end. Jeff's passion emerged over over a period of years, and it was it wasn't just the process of, of a pa- passive discovery uh, of unearthly a little gem hidden inside his psyche, but rather of an active construction. Jeff didn't just go looking for his passion. He helped create it. Moving into Ithaca, New York from Evanston, Illinois, Jeff at eight years old, could not have predicted his future career. At Cornell, he ended up majoring in philosophy in part because it was the easiest to fulfill the requirements. Then the summer as after freshman year, he visited East Africa. And that the, was the beginning of the beginning. I don't know how to explain it this place just blew my mind there was a spirit here that I wanted to connect with and I wanted to make. make it a part of my life as soon as he got back to cornell Jeff's uh, started taking courses in so- so- swahili after 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 sophomore and after sophomore year he took. He took a year off to backpack around the world. During that trip, he returned to East Africa, experiencing the same wonder he'd felt the first time he visited. Still, it wasn't clear how he'd make a life there. How did he hit on journalism as a career path? A professor who admitted Jeff's writing suggested as much, and Jeff remembered thinking, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Who wants to work for a boring newspaper? I remember thinking the same thing once I became a professor who wants to be a boring professor. Eventually, Jeff did work for the student paper at Cornell Daily Sun, but as a photographer, not a writer. When I got to Oxford, I was pretty lost academically. It was a shocking to um, it was it was shocking to the Oxford professors that I didn't really know what I wanted to do. They were like, "Why are you here? This is a serious place. You should have a a firm sense of what you want." to study or you shouldn't be here. All right, I'm gonna stop right here. I'm gonna give uh, the opportunity for anybody else that wants to jump in and read from the top of this page. Go for it.
1: Okay, I'll start reading. My guess at the time was that Jeff would pursue uh, photojournalism. He reminded me of Robert Kincaid, the worldly white the worldly wise photographer played by Clint Eastwood in the bridges of Madison County which was released around the time we became friends in fact I can still remember the photographs Jeff showed me 20 years ago I thought they were from National Geographic but he'd actually taken them himself by this by his second year at Oxford he figured out that journalism was an even better fit once I learned more about being a journalist and how, to, how that could get me back to Africa and how that actually would be fun and I could write more creatively than I first imagined journalism was, then I was like, screw it, this is what I'm going to do. I set out a very deliberate plan that was possible because the journalism industry was very hierarchical. And it was clear how to get from a, B, a to B to C to D, etc. Step A was writing on Oxford student newspaper, Churl. Step B was summer internship in a small paper in Wisconsin. Step C was the St. Petersburg Times in Florida on the Metro B. Step D was the Los Angeles Times. Step E was the New York Times as a national correspondent in Atlanta. Step F was being sent overseas to cover war stories. And in 2006, just over a decade since he'd set himself the goal, he finally reached step G, becoming the New York Times East Africa bureau chief. It was a a really winding road and took me to all kinds of places. And it was difficult, and discouraging, and demoralizing, and scary, and all the rest. But eventually, I got here. I got exactly where I wanted to be. As for so many other grit, paragons, the common metaphor of passion as fireworks doesn't make sense when you think of what passion means to Jeff gentlemen. Fireworks erupt in a blaze of glory, but quickly fizzle, leaving just wisps of smoke and a memory of what was once spectacular. What Jeff's journey suggests instead is passion as a compass, that thing that takes you some time to build, tinker with, and finally get right. And then, and that then guides you on your long and winding road to where ultimately you want to be. Seattle Seahawks coach Pete Carroll puts it this way. Do you have a life philosophy? For some of us, the question makes no sense. We might say, well, I have a lot of things I'm pursuing, a lot of goals, a lot of projects, which do you mean? But others have no problem answering this conviction. This is what I want. Everything becomes a bit clearer when you understand the level of the goal Pete is asking about. He's not asking about what you want to get done today, specifically, or even this year. He's asking what you're trying to get out of life. In grit terms, he's asking you about your passion. Pete's philosophy is do things better than they have ever been done before. Like with Jeff, it took a while to figure out what in, a, in the broader sense he was aiming for. The pivotal moment came at a low point in his coaching career just after getting fired as head coach in the, English, in the New England Patriots. This was the first and only year in his life when Pete wasn't playing or coaching football. At, this, at that junction, One of his good friends urged him to consider something more abstract that which job to take next. You've got to have a philosophy. Pete realized he didn't have one and needed to. If I was ever going to get a chance to run an organization again, I would have to be prepared with a philosophy that would drive all my actions. Pete did a lot of thinking and reflecting. My life in the next week's and months was filled with writing notes and filling binders. At the same time, he was devouring the books of John Wooden, the legendary UCLA basketball coach who won a record setting 10 national championships. Like a lot of coaches, Pete had already read Wooden, but this time he was reading Wooden and Understanding at a much deeper level. What the coaching icon had to say And The most important thing Wooden said was that though a team has to do a million things well, figuring out the overarching vision is of utmost importance. Pete realized in that moment that particular goals, winning a particular game, or even a seasonal championship, or figuring out the element of the offensive lineup, or the way to talk to players needed coordination, needed purpose, A clear, well-defined philosophy gives you the guidelines and boundaries to keep you on track, he said. One way to understand what Pete is talking about is to envision goals in a hierarchy. Hey, doesn't that look familiar? (laughs) Goal, 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 goal. So you have your top-level goal, mid-level goal, and low-level goal. At the bottom in this hierarchy are our most concrete and specific goals. The tasks we have on our short-term to-do list. I want to get out the door today at 8 a.m. I want to call my business partner back. I want to finish writing the email I started yesterday. These low-level goals exist merely as means to ends. We want to accomplish them only because they get us something else we want. In contrast, the higher the goal, in this hierarchy, the more abstract, general, and important it is. the Higher the goal, the more it's an end in itself, and the less it's merely a means to an end. In the diagram I've, I've sketched out here, there are just three levels. That's an oversimplification. Between the lowest and the highest level might be several layers of mid-level goals. For instance, getting out the door at 8 a.m. is a low level goal. It only matters because of the mid-level goal, arriving at work on time. Why do you care about that? Because you want to be punctual. Why do you care about that? Because being punctual shows respect for the people with whom you work. Why is that important? Because you strive to be a good leader. If in the course of asking yourself these why questions, your answer is simply just because. Then you know you've got to the top of the goal hierarchy. The top level goal is not a means to any other end. It is instead an end in itself. Some psychologists like to call this an ultimate concern. Myself, I think of this top level goal as a compass that gives direction and meaning to all the goals below it. Consider Hall of Fame pitch, pitcher, Tom Siever. When he retired in 1987 at the age of 42, he compiled 311 wins, 3,640 strikeouts, 61 shutouts, and 2.86 earned run average. In 1992, when Seaver was elected to the Hall of Fame, he received the highest ever percentage of votes, 98.8%. During his 20-year his professional baseball career, Seaver aimed to pitch the best I possibly can day after day, year after year. Here is how that intention gave meaning and structure to all of his low, lower order goals. Pitching determines what I eat, when I go to bed, what I do when I'm awake. It determines how I spend my life. When I'm not pitching, it if it means I have to come to Florida and can't get tanned because I get because I might get a burn that might that would keep me from throwing for a few days, and then I never go shirtless in the sun. If it means I have to remind myself to pet dogs with my left hand, or throw logs on the fire with my left hand, then I do that too. If it means in the winter, I eat cottage cheese instead of chocolate chip cookies in order to keep my weight down, then I eat cottage cheese. The life Seaver describes sounds grim, but that's not how Seaver saw things. Pitching is what makes me happy. I've devoted my life to it. I've made up my mind what I want to do. I'm happy when I pitch. Well, I only do things that help me be happy. What in what I mean by passion is not just that you have something you care about. What I mean is that you care about the same ultimate goal in, in an abiding, loyal, steady way. You are not care, caprious. Each day you wake up thinking of the questions you fell asleep thinking about. You are, in a sense, pointing in the same direction, even eager to take even the smallest step toward forward than to take a step to the side, towards some other destination. At the extreme, one might call your focus obsessive. Most of your actions derive from significance, from their allegiance, to your ultimate concerns, your life philosophy. You have your priorities in order. Great is about holding the same top level goal for a very long time. Furthermore, this life philosophy, as Pete Carroll put it, is too, is so interesting and important that it organizes a great level of your waking activity. And very gritty people, most mid-level and low-level goals are in the same way or another, related to the ultimate goal. In contrast, a lack of grit can come from, can come from having less coherent goal structures. Here are a few ways a lack of grit can show itself. I've met many young people who can articulate a dream, for example, to be a doctor or to play basketball in the NBA. Okay, who would like to read next?
2: I'll read next. Um, I just don't know where you left off. I can vividly the top of the page. Okay, and uh, can vividly imagine how wonderful that would be, but they cannot point out the mid level or low level goals that will get them there. Their goal hierarchy has a top level goal, but not supporting mid level and low level goals. Um, this is what my good friend and fellow psychiatrist Gabrielle. Oh then, I don't know calls specific fantastically. Gabriel researches suggest that indulging in visions of positive future without figuring out how to get there, chiefly by considering that obstacles set obstacles stand in the way has short-term payoffs but long-term costs. In the short term, you feel pretty great about your aspiration to your doctor. And in long term, you live with disappointment of not having achieved your goal. Even more common, I think, is that a bunch of mid level goals they don't correspond with, uh, correspond to any undefined top level goals, or having a complete goal hierarchies that aren't in any of way connected with each other. To some extent, goals conflicts is a necessary feature of the human existence. For instance, I have one goal hierarchy as a professional and another as a mother, even. Tom Sawyer admits that the travel and practice schedule for professional baseball player made it so hard to spend as much time with his wife, children, as he would have liked. So that through pitching, was it his professional passion? There were other goals, hierarchies, and obviously matter to him. Like Seaver, I have one goal hierarchy for work. Use psychological science to help kids thrive. But I have a separate goal hierarchy that involves being the best mother I can be to my two daughters. As working parents know, having two ultimate concerns isn't easy there seems to be never enough time energy or attention to go around i've decided to live with that that tension as a young woman i considered alternatives not having my career and not raising a family and decided that morally there was no right decision only the decision that was right for me so the idea that was uh so the idea that every walk waking moment in our lives should be guided by one top-level goals is an ideal, idealist uh, extreme that may not be desirable even for the grittiest of us. Still, I would argue that the possible to pair down long lists of mid-level and low-level working goals according to how they serve a goal of supreme importance. And I think one of my top-level professional goals Rather than another other, rather than any other number is ideal. The sum, the more uh, ununified, aligned, and coordinated our goal hierarchies, the better. Warren Buffett, the self-made million, multi-billionaire uh, whose professional wealth according ex, according eternally with his own lifetime is roughly twice the size as Harvard University endowment. Reportedly gave his pilot a simple three-step process for prioritizing. The story goes like this. Buffett turns to his faithful pilot and says he must have dreams greater than flying. Buffett around and wherever he needs to go. The pilot confesses, yes, he does. And then Buffett takes him through the three steps. First, write down a list of 25 career goals. There's the formula right there. (laughs) All right. Second, you need to do some soul searching and circle the five highest priority goals, just five. Third, you take a good hard look at 20 goals you didn't circle. Uh, these you avoid at all costs they they're what distract you they eat away time and energy taking your eye away from the goal that matters when I first heard the story I thought who could have as 20 who can have as many as 25 different career goals that's kind of a that's kind of ridiculous isn't it then I started writing down my own piece of lined paper all of the projects I'm currently working on. When I got to line 32, I realized that I could benefit from this exercise. Interestingly, most of the goals I, I I spontaneously thought that were mid-level goals. People generally default to the that level of the goal when they're asked to write down a number of goals, not just one. To help me prioritize, I added columns all that, that allowed me to sort out how interested and important these projects are. I rated each goal on a scale from one to 10, from least to most interesting, and then again from least to most important. I multiplied these numbers together to get the number from one to 100. None of my goals had an an interesting X of importance, rating as high as 100%, but more, or uh, rating as high as 100, but none were as low as one either. Then I tried to take Buffett's advice and circle a few of the most interesting and important goals, regulating the rest of my avoid-at-all-cost category. I tried, and, but I couldn't do it. After a day so I, or so, I wondered who was right, me or Warren Buffett. I realized that a lot of my goals were, in fact, related to one another. The majority, in fact, were means-to-ends. Sitting, setting me up for the progress towards the ultimate goal, helping kids achieve and thrive. There were only a few professional goals for which that, this was true. Reluctantly, I decided to put these on a avoid at all cost list. Now I could sit down with Buffett and go through my list with him, which is unlikely since I doubt my needs rate a place in his goal hierarchy. He would surely tell me that the point of this exercise is to face the fact that time and energy are limited and successful persons has has to decide what to do in a part by deciding what not to do. I get that and I still have a ways to go on that count but I would also say that conversational priorities isn't enough. When you have to decide your actions among a number of very different high-leveled career goals, you're extremely conflict conflicted. You need one internal compass or two, three, four, or five.
0: One, one internal compass, not two, three, four, and five. Dang, that's powerful. I stand, mira. Yeah, what is This is what's gonna happen right here.
2: What is? Oh, he's rolling that way, and she's rolling this way. That's... <laughs> <laughs> or this is
0: this is your RVP, and this is you as a regional leader. <laughs> if
2: you're not being coachable, <laughs> that's a non-coachable. Uh, this is you downline? Down <laughs> Jeez, no way.
0: This is good. Oh, I thought the chapter was done. Let's let's me keep me too.
2: Awesome. It says 10, uh, 10 pages left in this chapter on the bottom. This All goes, right. <clears throat> well. Let me clear my throat. All right. So uh, to Buffett's three steps, exercising and prioritizing, I would add additional steps. Ask yourself, to what extent do these goals serve a common purpose? The more they're a part of the same hierarchy, important because they are serving the same unlimited concern, the more focused your passion. Um, if you follow the method of prioritization, you will become the Hall of Fame pitcher or earn more money than anyone else in history. Probably not, but you'll still stand at a better chance of getting somewhere—somewhere somewhere you care about—a better chance of moving closer to where you want to be. When you see your goals organization in the hierarchy, you realize that grit is not at all about stubbornly pursuing at all costs and add in, I don't know what that word is, in finum, oh. coach, what is that word? Cost and add on this second sentence, at all costs and add in fin, uh, every single low level goal on your list in fact, you can expect to abandon a few of the things you're working very hard at, on at this moment. Not all of them will work. Sure. You should try harder or you should try hard. Even a ver- a little longer than you might think necessary. But don't beat your head against the wall attempting to follow through on something that is merely a me- this means um, merely a means to a more important end. I thought about how important it is to how low level goals fit in one's overall hierarchy when I listened to Ross Chest, a celebrity New York cartoonist, giving a talk at a local library. She told me rejection rate is at the stage in her career, about 90%, true, okay. A cartoonist, 90% rejection. Uh, She claimed that it used to be much higher I called Bob Mankoff, the cartoon editor for The New York, uh, to ask how, typically that, how typical that number is. To me it seemed shockingly high. Bob told me that Ross was indeed an, a nominee few. I thought, I don't want to think about how the cartoonists in the world getting rejected nine times out of the ten, but Bob told me most cartoonists live with even more rejection. At his magazine, contract cartoonists who have dramatically better odds of getting published than anyone else collectively submit about 500 cartoons a week. In a given issue, there is only only room on the average for about 17 of them. I did the math, that's a rejection rate of more than 96%. Holy smokes, who would keep going with the odds uh, are that grim? Well, for one, Bob himself. Bob's story reveals a lot how the dog perseveres uh, towards the top level, requires approximately perhaps some flexibility at lower levels of the goal hierarchy. It's as if the highest level goals get written in ink. Once you're done even living and reflecting on how, what that goal is, and the lower level goal gets written in pencil so you can revise them, and sometimes erase them along the way and figure out the new uh, ones to take their place. Here's my not at all New York quality drawing to show what I mean. The low level goal with the angry looking X through it uh, has been blocked. It's a rejection slip, a setback, a dead end, a failure. The gritty person will be disappointed or even heartbroken, but not for long. So enough, the gritty person identifies a new low level goal, draws another cartoon, for example, that serves the same purpose. One of the models of the green barrettes is impulsive, adapt, overcome. Improvise. Improvise, Improvise, adapt, and overcome. I've heard somebody say that before. Improvise, adapt, overcome. A lot of us were told as children if at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again. Sounds sound advice, but As they say, try, try again, then try something different. At the lower levels of the goal hierarchy, that's exactly what's needed. Here's Bob Mankoff's story. Like Jeff Glintman, uh, the New York Times East African Bureau chief, Bob didn't always have a clear, defined passion. As a child, Bob liked to draw. And instead of attending his local high school in the Bronx, He went to La Garnia High School of Music and Arts, later functioning, functionalize, I don't know if this, in the movie fame. Um, Once there, though he got a look at the competition and he was intimidated, being exposed to real drawing talent, Bob recalls, made mine withered. I didn't touch a pencil. I didn't touch a pen, pencil, or paintbrush for three years after graduating. Instead, he enrolled in the Sarkis University where he studied philosophy and psychology. In his senior year, he brought a book called Learning to Cartoon by the legendary Stud Hoff. The example of the effort counts twice, Maxim. Over his life, Hoff, Contributed 571 cartoons to The New Yorker. Wrote and illustrated more than 60 children books. Drew two syndical comic strips. And contributed literally thousands of drawings and cartoons to other publications. Haas Books opened Shirley with its, with, it, is it hard becoming a cartoonist? No, it isn't. And proved it. I've written this book. It ends with a chapter called "How to Survive Rejection Slips." In between are lessons of uh, lessons on composition, perspective and human figure, facial expressions, and so on. Bob used Hoff's advice to create 27 cartoons. He walked from the magazine to, he walked from one magazine to another, trying to make a sale but not The New Yorker, which didn't see cartoonists in person. And he was, of course, similarly rejected by every editor he saw. Most asked him to try again with car- more cartoons, and next week more, Bob wondered, how would anyone do more than 27 cartoons? Before he can reread Hoff's last chapter, Rejection Slips, Bob received a notice that he was eligible to be drafted for combat in in Vietnam. He had no great desire to go. In fact, he had a great desire not to. So he repurposed himself quickly as a graduate student in the uh, experimental psychology. Over the next few years while running rats and mazes, he found some time where he could draw. Um, Then before earning his doctorate, he had the realization that researching psychology wasn't his call. I remember thinking that my defined personality characteristics was something else. I'm the funniest guy you'll ever meet. That's the way I thought of myself. I'm funny. For a while, Bob considered two ways of making humor his career. I said, okay, I'm going to do a stand-up. I'm going to be a cartoonist. Uh, he threw himself into the booth uh, to the, he threw himself both with gusto. Uh, all day, I would write routines and then at night I would draw cartoons. But over time, one of these two mid-level goals became more attractive than the other. Stand-up was different back then. There weren't real comedy clubs. I had to go to the Borish Belt, and I didn't really want to. I knew my humor was not going to work like I wanted it to for these people. So, job, so Bob dropped out of stand up comedy and devoted his entire energy to cartoon. After two years of submitting, all I had to show for it were New York rejection slips uh, to wallpaper my bathroom. There were small victories, cartoons sold the other magazines. But by the time that Bob's top level had become a whole lot more specific and ambitious, he didn't just want to be funny for a living. He wanted to be among the best cartoonists in the world. The New York was the cartooning that the New York Yankees were to baseball. The best team, Bob explains. If you can make that, if you can make that team, you're you two were one of the best. Okay, who would like to read next?
0: I'll continue right here. You're you're at that paragraph, the piles of rejection, right?
3: Yes. Where you where you stopped? Oh there you go, Susie. Susie's up.
0: Okay, go for it, Susie right there at the, the piles of rejection.
3: Where it's highlighted. Yes. Okay. The piles of rejection slips suggested to Bob that try, try again was not working. He decided to do something different. I went to the New York Public Library and I looked up all the cartoons back to 1925 that had ever been printed in the New Yorker. At first, he thought maybe he didn't draw well enough but it was plain to see that some very successful New Yorker cartoonists were third-rate draftsmen. Then Bob thought that something might might be awry with the length of his captions, too short or too long, but that possibility wasn't supported either. Captions were generally brief, but not always. In any ways, Bob's didn't seem unusual in in that respect. Then Bob thought maybe he he was missing the mark with his type of humor. No, again, some successful cartoons were whimsical, some satirical, some philosophical, and some just interesting. The other thing all the cartoons had in common was this. They made the reader think. And here was another common thread every cartoonist had a personal style that was distinctively their own there was no single best style on the contrary what mattered was that style was that style was in some very deep and idiosyncratic way idiosyncratic way an expression of the individual cartoonist paging through literally Every cartoon The New Yorker had ever published, Bob knew he could do as well or better, I thought. I can do this. I can do this. I had complete confidence. He knew he could draw cartoons that would make people think. And he knew he could develop his own style. I worked through various styles. Eventually, I did my dot style. The now famous dot style of Bob's cartoons is called. Uh, stippling and Bob had ori- originally tried it out back in high school when he discovered the French impressionist George uh, Sa- Sorant or Saint, Um after getting rejected from the New Yorker about 2,000 times between 1974 and 1977 Bob sent in the cartoon below it was accepted Robert Mankoff, The New Yorker, June 20th, 1977. The New Yorker Collection. The next year, he sold 13 cartoons to The New Yorker, then 25 the following year, then 27. In 1981, Bob received a letter from the magazine asking if he would considered becoming a contract cartoonist. He said yes. In his role as editor and mentor, Bob advises aspiring cartoonists to submit their drawings in batches of 10, because in cartooning as in life, nine out of 10 things never work out. Indeed, giving up on lower level goals is not only forgivable, it's sometimes absolutely necessary. You should give up when one lower level goal can be swapped for another that is more feasible. It also makes sense to switch your path when a different lower level goal, a different means to the same end, is just more efficient or more fun or for whatever reason makes more sense than your original plan. On any long journey, detours are to be expected. However, the higher level the goal, the more it makes sense to be stubborn. Personally, I try not to get too hung up on a particular rejected grant application, academic paper, or failed experiment. The pain of those failures is real, but I don't dwell on them for long before moving on. In contrast, I don't give up as easily on mid-level goals, and frankly, I can't imagine anything that would change my ultimate aim. My life philosophy, as Pete might say, My compass, once I found all the parts and put it together, keeps pointing me in the same direction, week after month after year. Long before I conducted the first interviews that put me on the trail of grit, a Stanford psychologist named Catherine Cox was herself cataloging the characteristics of high achievers. In 1926, Cox published her findings based on the biographical details of 301 exceptionally accomplished historical figures. These eminent individuals included poets, political and religious leaders, scientists, soldiers, philosophers, artists, and musicians, all lived and died in the fourth centuries prior to Cox's investigation and all left behind records of accomplishment worthy of documentation in six popular encyclopedias. Cox's initial goal was to estimate how smart each of these individuals were, both relative to one another and also compared to the rest of humanity. In pursuit of those estimates, she combed through the available evidence, searching for signs of intellectual precocity and from the age and superiority of these accomplishments, she reckoned each person's childhood IQ. The published summary of this study, if you can call a book of more than 800 pages a summary, dang, includes a case history for each of Cox's 301, arranged uh, in order from uh, least to most intelligent. According to Cox, the very smartest in the bunch was the philosopher John Stuart Mill, who earned an estimate childhood IQ of 190 by learning Greek at age three, writing a history of Rome at age six, and assisting his father in correcting the proofs of history of India at age 12. The least intelligent in Cox's um, ranking whose estimated childhood IQ of 100 to 110 are just a hair above average for humanity. So the, the, the lowest ranking, that's the average for humanity. Well, okay. Included the founder of modern astronomy, Nicola Copernicus, uh, the chem- chemist and physicist, Michael F- Faraday, and the Spanish poet and novelist, Miguel de Cervantes. Isaac Newton ranks squarely in the middle with an IQ of 130, the bare minimum that a child needs in order to qualify for many of today's gifted and talented programs. From these IQ estimates, Cox concluded that as a group, accomplished historical figures are smarter than most of us, no surpriser. A more unexpected observation was how little IQ matter in distinguishing the most from the least accomplished. The average childhood IQ in the mo- of the most eminent geniuses whom Cox dubbed the first 10 was 146. The average IQ of the least eminent dubbed the last 10 was 143. Um, the spread was trivial. In other words, the relationship between intelligence and eminence in Cox's example was exceedingly slight. So the, the Cox's first 10, the most eminent geniuses, Sir Francis Bacon, Napoleon Bonaparte, Edmund Burke, uh, Johann Wolf, Wolfgang van Goth, uh, Martin Luther, John Milton, Isaac Newton, William Pitt, Voltaire, George Washington. Cox's last 10, the least eminent geniuses. Christian uh, Von Bunsen, Thomas Calmers, Thomas Chatterton, uh, Richard Cobden, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and Georges G. Danton. Okay. I okay. We'll
0: and a few more. Here, Susie, just cuz it's already 10 o'clock Yeah. Um I thought we would finish the the book, um the chapter, but I don't know. See, I'll leave it at purple. It's still uh oh, you know what? Why don't you finish it, Susie? It's only two pages. Go for it.
3: Finish what? This this
0: Yeah, yeah, we're only two The pages. paragraph? No, nah, the whole the whole chapter. Let's do it.
3: Okay. Hold on, let me close my door because um, there's a little noise. Hold. Okay. Good. okay, if intellectual talent wasn't the determinant of whether a person ascended to the first 10 or was relegated in the last 10, then what was? While pouring over thousands of pages of bio, biographical data, Cox and her assistant also evaluated 67 different personality traits for a subset of 100 geniuses. Cox deliberately chose a rainbow of traits. In fact, she covered the full range of what modern psychologists consider to be important to allow for the fullest possible exploration of the differences that set apart the eminent from the rest of humanity and further the first 10 from the last 10. For most of the 67 indicators, Cox found only trivial differences between the eminent and the general population. For instance, eminence had little to do with extroversion, cheerfulness, or sense of humor. Okay, I got hope. (laughs) And not all all the high achievers had earned high marks in school. Rather, what definitely set apart the eminent from the rest of humanity were a cluster of four indicators. Notably, these also distinguish the first 10 from the last 10, the super eminent from the merely eminent. Cox grouped these together and called them persistence of motive. Two indicators could easily be rephrased as passion items for the grid scale. Degree to which he works with distant objects in view, as opposed to living from hand to mouth, active preparation for later life working toward a definite goal tendency not to abandon tasks from mere changeability not seeking something fresh because of novelty not looking for a change and the other two could easily be rewritten as perseverance items for the grid scale degree of strength of will or perseverance quiet determination to stick to a course and decide, once decided upon, tendency not to abandon tasks in the face of obstacles, perseverance, tenacity, uh, doggedness. In her summary comments, Cox concluded that high but not the highest intelligence combined with the greatest degree of persistence will achieve greater eminence than the highest degree of intelligence with someone less, less persistent. Wow, good. So persistence over intelligence. However, you score on the grid uh, scale, I hope it prompted self reflection. It's progress just clarifying your goals and the extent to which they are or erring in aligned toward a single passion or supreme impo- of supreme importance. It also, it's also progress to better understand how well. You're currently able to persevere in the face of life's rejection slips. It's a start. Let's continue in the next chapter to see how grid can and does change. And then in the rest of the book, let's learn how to accelerate that growth.
0: Wow, that, that's, that's exciting. So, so let's do it, guys. Let's, let's, let's finish this book up. Um, chapter five, next week at nine in the morning. Tanya, I'll let you have the last word. Go for it, champion.
1: Hey, okay, thank you everybody so much for reading today. Um, yeah, this this chapter was really good. I saw a lot of good points. And uh, I don't know if you guys noticed, but when they were, he was showing the the bubbles, I was like, hey, that looks familiar. We've seen that before. So I'm like, um, I always try to primaricatize everything that we do. You know, like, I'm like, I got to associate it to my business. So make it for my business. And every time when I'm hearing people talk about this, I'm like, that sounds like us. Okay, this sounds like us. Like, you know, we're, we're very gritty people, you know, and, and and grit, and when you hear the word grit, you don't think of like, oh, this is like a really like, oh, nice thing, you know? It's like, no, grit is like, is like ganas. It's like, you know, like you have like, you have guts. Like you really get out there and you do what you need to do and it doesn't matter. And you just get out there and you do it, you know? You just gotta go out there and do it. Um, But thank you everybody for reading today. Uh, We'll go ahead and end it up with that and we will see you next week. Bye.